And so to have that spontaneous experience of oneness that, I, I mean, I literally kept saying two things over and over again while it was happening. I was sitting on a couch, we were in a rented house and I kept saying, it's here, it's here, it's really here. And then I would say, I can't leave it. I can't leave it. And luckily my friends were all, two of them very experienced spiritual practitioners. Everybody was an experienced coach and facilitator. So they just held me there. I went with it. Yeah. And, you know, writing about it was so hard because it's so hard to put into words. I find myself tongue-tied now, but I can feel it. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Jennifer Loudon. Jennifer has recently written a book called Why Bother? Discover the Desire for What's Next. Jennifer helped launch the self-care movement with her first book, The Woman's Comfort Book. She's now written eight books on well-being and whole living. Jennifer is a former columnist for Whole Living, a Martha Stewart magazine, and she's appeared on TV. I've already said that. She's appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Her work has been featured in People, USA Today, CNN, and Brene Brown's books, Daring Greatly and Dare to Lead. In this interview, we talk about what she has learned in her long career as one of the pioneers of the self-care movement. I was interested to talk with Jen because I know that she's someone who has been writing and speaking and teaching in this area of personal growth for two and a half decades or so. And I wasn't familiar with her work before I read this book, Why Bother? But I read the book and I got a lot out of it, even though I'm not its target audience. She wrote this for women. One of the things that I really like about Jen's work is her honesty about the limits of personal improvement, of self-improvement. The fact that self-improvement is not a magic wand, that life is hard, and there are things we can do to improve the quality of our lives. There's things we can stop doing. And there's no higher calling for a teacher, perhaps, than to live what he or she teaches. Jen shares very honestly in this interview about what it's like to have experienced deep depression. She talks about a number of concepts that I think are both interesting and useful. She talks about something called an emotional immune system, what it is, how it works, how we can use it. We explore the topic of desire. We talk about aliveness, living a life we enjoy that matters. Jennifer talks about something she calls signature themes, what they are, how to identify them, how to work with them. We talk about something she calls shadow comforts. We also talk about something she calls time monsters. Jen walks us through something she calls conditions of satisfaction, a way of really measuring the things that matter in our lives 
so that we can get out of the trap of not feeling enough. Jen talks about what it means to stay open to life, how to do it, how to figure out what it is we really want next. And the final part of this interview, as I often do, I explore the creative process, writing, and marketing and promotion. Jen is someone who coaches people around the creative process and writing in particular. Her insights and experiences here are valuable if you are working to complete your own project. And then what she says about marketing and promoting books, if you're interested in that, she's also someone who's speaking with authority, having nearly now, or probably by the time you hear this, a million books in print. And what she says is very practical and demystifies some of what it is, like what it takes to put a book out into the world and have people actually buy it. I'm really grateful to Jen for sharing the truth of personal improvement, of self-improvement. It's not a magic elixir. It doesn't necessarily even make life easier. It can help us become more aware. It can help us make better choices. And I think it can, in fact, help us live better lives, but it doesn't necessarily make anything easier as much as we wish it would. So signing up for that workshop, buying that book, you know, that masterclass, whatever it is, the intention we have when we start, that's great and honor that. But as Jen points out, desire, whatever it is we desire in some way can never fully be satisfied. Jennifer, welcome to the School for Good Living. Oh, it's such a good name for a podcast and a company, isn't it? The School for Good Living. I love it. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. Will you tell me, please, what's life about? I think life is about how much can we allow ourselves to be alive? How much can we be here for it? How much can we open past the hurt and the you know, the places that we want to shut down? How can we just be our fully ourselves and as here as possible? Yeah, I love that view. And, and it calls to mind for me what Joseph Campbell said about what we're all seeking, really. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. The experience of being alive. Experience yeah. of being alive. I love that quote. Yeah. And, and I certainly subscribe to that. When people ask you who you are or what you're passionate about, Mm. How do you typically answer that? Or how do you like to answer that? Well, I might make a joke or, you know, or like, I don't know, it's such a hard question. I actually have hated that question for so much of my life, but I don't hate it anymore. I don't mm. hate it anymore. Why do you think you hated it for so long? Because I didn't, ex if I, I didn't accept who I was and what, what I naturally do. I, I believe some of us naturally love what we do, what we develop our skills towards or, or you know, because I think we have lots of skills and lots of possibilities of things we can do in life. And some of us like naturally love it, you know, or we're proud of it or we're comfortable with it or it fits us. At the same time, it challenges us and develops us. And some of us reject it. And I rejected mine. I half rejected mine for a good 20 years or more. Let's just not say how many years. <laughs> so what I'm curious about now is the fact that you don't hate your answer to that question, which we have yet to get to. Is it because you've changed the answer or that you've come to love it? No, because I've come to accept it. Mm, or accept it. Okay. So, so what is it? I think there's two things. One is I help people, especially women, make more of what they want, make more of the lives they want, the writing they want, the 
the, the this liveness, the aliveness that we were just talking about. And then I think the other thing that I really help people do just fell out of my brain, Brian, entirely. <laughs> like I just had the biggest brain, boof, like, wow, okay, I'm sure it'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect it will. <laughs> but I love what you're saying here about helping women make more of what they want, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah, because even from a very young age, I didn't want to accept how people would shut themselves off. I remember, I mean, I didn't have the words for it when I was seven or eight, but I would kind of think like, why are you people doing that, you adults? <laughs> this doesn't seem like a good idea. And of course now in my in my 50s, I'm like, oh, because it's a little bit harder than you think. <laughs> yeah, amazing what, what a little experience, a little perspective right. can do for us. And you know, I'm not sure if this is one of the ways people do that. But as I read your book, Why Bother? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me let me go down that path for a moment first, and that'll provide context for everyone listening. But your most recent book, and I think this is your eighth book. I think it right? is too, but I lose track. But yes, yeah. let's, let's go with that. <laughs> okay. So your latest book, Why Bother? Discover the Desire for What's Next. This is a book that in the book, it says it took you about 12 years to write this book. And that is, it sounds like a prison sentence. <laughs> <laughs> for, right? for what do you get 12 years for? <laughs> and, and it might have felt that way. But tell me, please, who did you write this book for and what did you want it to do for them? Mm. I wanted it, first of all, to, to give people the reminder, the tools, and most of all, the companionship to realize that they don't have to give up on the call, the feeling, the desire for more whatever that more is, more creative expression, more purpose in their life, more health, more love, more intimacy in their relationships, whatever it is, there's always more. And we settle, we get disappointed, we get scarred, we have life-changing loss, and then we go, no more for me. So that, that's my hope for the book. And then I actually had four very specific people in mind who I had either worked with or had been related to. <laughs> and I thought, I thought about their dilemmas just kept resonating with me or the places that they were stuck on more, where they had never let themselves have more in one case. So I had four very specific people in mind. That expanded in, in, in the last drafts to a variety of more people. But I believe as a writer, it's good to have some a couple specific readers in mind. Yeah. Well, that was one thing that I was touched by in this book on page 24, where you say that very thing, that my intention with this book is to offer you companionship, not prescription. And I thought that's really refreshing because so many books are, you know, and admittedly, I think we buy books because we're looking for direction. I mean, often we're looking for inspiration, but it's not very often. Uh, in fact, I can't recall ever having read a book where the author was saying, I'm just going to be along with you on the journey that this life is. And I appreciate that. And, and I certainly felt that because you have this incredible mixture in this book about sharing your personal stories in a very honest way, <laughs> which, which I want to ask you about, but also some deep, what I think are really deep insights. And, and this is now what I want to jump to where you talk about, you know, when we close ourselves off, you know, we get hurt or a disappointment or setback or whatever, and we close ourselves off and it's often right? Well-meaning. It's probably always well-meaning, right? And you use a term I hadn't heard before called our emotional immune system. And I wonder if you'll start by talking about that. 
What is an emotional immune system? Yeah, it's an idea that I that I built on or renamed from the work and the immunity to change work that Lisa Leahy and Bob Keegan do at Harvard, and that's the name of their book about it. And I'd studied it for quite a while, and it's really interesting, but it's also kind of confusing. And so I tried to, over the years of teaching it, try to find the core of it for the people that I work with. And the idea that I got from them that I just think is one of those wow ideas is that we are not actually scared of change. We're not scared of being, of what we want. We're not afraid of success. We're not self-sabotaging but we're afraid of being undefended. That the, just like our immune system can defend us from things that are coming in that would make us sick, but it can also defend us from things that won't hurt us. So if you've ever had allergies, like I have some food allergies, right? I don't think eating sugar is actually, I mean, I've eat a lot of it, but a little bit of sugar is not gonna kill me, but my body thinks it will, it freaks out and like it hives. So our emotional immune system is like that. It kind of, it says, uh oh, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to be defended if you do this. Something might eat you. Something might horrible happen. Now, not physically, but to your identity, to your sense of self, which of course is an illusion anyway, but we love that illusion. So in the book, I try to give you, again, these are based on my interpretation of their work to give you ideas of how to expand your emotional immune system. Because the idea is you always have one, just like you better have an immune system or you'll die but you can make it a little bigger, a little bit more robust so that you can take more actions to bother. No, that, that makes sense to me. And I, again, I'd never heard it phrased this way, but when I encountered that concept that we have on and that our work, if we choose to view it that way or accept it, is about making more space inside our emotional immune system. And of course, that's, I think, the whole idea of this book about why bother, right? Why did you, why did you call it this? What do you mean by that? And I was a little embarrassed when I started writing this book, finally, when after all the years this book came together, because it felt like I was calling out the thing that every single one of us asks and the place that we all end up at different times in our life for different amounts of time and different amounts of strength or intensity or despair. But it felt like I was not being a good, you know, coach, <laughs> good, you know, personal growth cheerleader to say, why bother? But that's my thesis, really. We all ask it in different ways and different times in our life. And you may not use the word, Brian, why bother? You may say, what's the point? Or why build my business? It's so hard. Everyone else has ever done it. Or why have the purpose to write? I mean, my God, look at how many writers there are. You know, we, we have all kinds of ways we language it, but the the uniting factor is we think we know the answer and it's no, there is no point. There is no reason to bother. So the first idea in the book and the big idea really is you got to actually ask the question. You actually have to stop when something's not working, when something feels dead, when something from the past that you can't have anymore keeps calling you, you can't assume that you know the answer because that's what you're doing. And it's so automatic because it's built into our emotional immune system. Yeah. And it's such, uh, the words that come to mind, like a sticky wicket. <laughs> yes, yes, right? it is a sticky wicket. <laughs> exactly. Because when we recognize that we are the ones who impart meaning to the events and circumstances of our lives, including giving the answer to why bother and holding it up as valid and exactly. meaningful. All at the same time of recognizing that we're the ones that have created that, that you know, perhaps there's nothing more substantive to it than the fact that we did 
you know, articulate it, declare it, and that we continue to give it energy by the very intention we hold for it. But this is something that I think is really a profound question, you know, whether we ever become aware of it or we think of it through some of the questions you ask, which is, and it relates, of course, to desire. You talk in this book a lot about desire. And I know that's a big, big topic, but will you tell me, like, how do you think about desire? And how does it play into this idea of why bother? Yeah. Well, to me, desire is the flow of life. It's not aliveness from the earlier question. It's your purpose. And it flows through desire. It's how it speaks to you. I mean, you desire to have the school of good living. Yeah. I mean, it didn't just like, it didn't come on the door and come to the door and knock and say, hi, would you like to create this and do all this hard work and teach all these people and record all these podcasts? It's like, no, something kept stirring in you. Maybe it took some different iterations. I desire to write. And that has been my quest for 30 plus years, right? So desire in me is how life keeps showing up and saying, hi, this might be a really interesting way for you to learn and grow. This might be a really interesting way for you to serve and express. Are you going to listen to me? Are you going to work with me? Are you going to work with me even if you don't get exactly what you want? Are you going to work with me even if it makes you like uncomfortable to want more or to try this thing again? Or are you going to cut me off? And then you cut it off enough and you cut off life. Yeah, that that is such an interesting thing because you talk about this, the, the kind of the components of desire, about the kind of desire that's grasping. Mm-hmm. You know, and the kind of desire that's maybe, I don't know how you would describe it, more aspirational. But actually, I, I realize as I'm as I'm even saying this that I want to I want to ask a different question first, because you also talk about something called signature themes. And I and I thought that was interesting. Will you talk about what is a signature theme? I think a signature theme, and this is totally my idea. So it may not, you all listening, you may go, I'll buy it. Cool, throw it out. But my experience has been in myself and in working with people that we have ways that our desire kind of shows up over and over again, like it does for a painter. Or actually the first way I ever encountered it, I went to film school and I encountered it when, you know, we would study the auteurs and the auteurs would have these themes that they, you know, that, you know, Hitchcock and, you know, and I was painters, writers, novelists. They had these themes they return to over and over again. And I think we have themes we return to over and over again. And one of mine is helping people make more of what they want, right? And we can deny them or we can, we can, sometimes I think we can explore them enough that we kind of go, okay, I got that one, right? And I don't, there's no more juice for it. There's no more desire in it for me. But in general, I think it's not getting caught up in the form that they take, especially in this culture where it should be successful, it should make money, it should have 10,000 million Instagram followers, right? But that it has that aliveness and it also won't leave us alone. It won't leave you alone. It like it, It's not necessarily comfortable, right? Sometimes it's like, oh, get out of me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and that was something too that you talk about when you say here, for anyone, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is a pre, like an advanced reader copy. No, that's but, my. That's it. That's the okay. real one. So on page two twenty eight, you talk about this idea of signature themes, and I love what you say about they excite you, they trouble you, animate you, make you want to take action, and I could totally picture it's like a little dog. Just yes, <laughs> my little know, dog is asleep down here, <laughs> just kind floor. of nipping at my heels all uh-huh. the time. And one thing I thought was interesting that you distinguish these from our purpose from our life purpose why 
Why do you do that? Why do you think our signature themes are distinct from our life purpose? This is going to maybe make me sound like a cranky old lady, but I have seen life purpose stop and hurt so many people. And I don't think it was because anybody who was selling it or teaching it or writing about it had any nefarious, you know, plan, but it it feels like in the last 15 years it got really concretized around success around being known for something and maybe around being special and you and i probably have really similar purposes or what i call signature themes right to help people make more of what they want to have more of a good life to be more alive and i i've seen so many people i've worked with just get frozen on living and bothering because they don't know their life purpose in a beautiful tie a bow on it, make money out of it, be unique about it, have a cool website from it, or have it be you know something that serves millions of people. And I'm just like, those are all really nice things. But to me, the, again, our life purpose is to be here, to be ourselves, to, to be alive, to open to life. And our signature themes just feel more playful, malleable, and and to go and they, we can't we can't cling to them right we can't cling to the forms that they take as much yeah i i really like that and it reminds me of something i once heard osho talk about and of course it's a much bigger it does, the thought doesn't belong to osho but when he talks about life is the purpose yes <laughs> right same thing right life is the purpose like being here is the purpose it took me many years to understand that and it's such a relief when i did because I wanted to have that special life purpose on that identity because really I think that kind of life purpose is an identity. It's a box, right? It's a thing. Here I am at the party and oh, it's just so, it makes me like my stomach roll. That, you yeah. know, like, please don't go back in that box, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you write about that. I believe this was in the period when you were working to be a successful screenwriter. And I think you even used the image of being trapped in a glass box. I don't know if that was related to this, but I would love to hear this because of what we've followed. Clearly, you're a writer. At one point, you were following a path pretty earnestly about being a screenwriter, and you very deliberately made a decision to stop following that path that way. What happened? Will you tell us how you made that change or how you knew that vein of desire had petered out or what, what happened? I don't think the vein of desire petered out so much as I petered out. <laughs> well, about so maybe being a screenwriter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went to film school. I always wanted to be a creative kid. I made movies. I wrote plays. I went to film school thinking I would be a director. And pretty early on, I was all of 19, realized that maybe I wasn't, especially a woman in, in 19, early 80s in Los Angeles. Like, I didn't have literally i didn't have the balls <laughs> to do it and still a very male dominated world as we know and so then i went towards editing and cinematography but i have some um, learning disabilities and so i actually couldn't do those things i couldn't do the math involved i couldn't do i couldn't roll the film the right way on the film reel i mean really simple things were very difficult for me and i'd always written and i started to find some kudos and good grades and such screenwriting so i i latched onto that brian i am going to be a screenwriter now this is usc so my contemporaries are graduating they are selling screenplays for a lot of money they are getting movie deals and my friends are like yeah i sold my screenplay for four hundred thousand dollars i'm like well 
I can do that too. Sure, I'll sell the screenplay in no time. The only problem was I was finding myself more and more frozen and less and less able to write. And I would sit down at my kitchen table, usually with a hangover, trying to rewrite. I would end up rewriting the same couple pages over and over again. And what little career I had, my agent stopped calling me back. And I was so unhappy and so depressed. And I would have this little voice started in my head. It got louder and louder, but at first it was a little voice and it would say, you need to take some time off. You need to just put aside writing for a little bit, do something else for money. You know, maybe work in a bookstore or you love gardening. And I would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I swear to God, this is exactly what I would say to myself. As soon as I sell a screenplay for $400,000, I will take care of myself. I will slow down. I will ask myself, why bother? Why am I so unhappy? Right? But I thought there was only one answer. And finally, I was so miserable, I decided I would take a month off. And I called a friend who I was incredibly jealous of. She was having more success as a writer to tell her, of all people, why her, still don't know, that I was going to quit writing for a month. And she was like, you know, whatever. And I hung up the phone and I heard the title for what became my first book. As clearly as if you said it to me right now, Brian, The Woman's Comfort Book. And I remember looking at the door, I was in this little tiny guest house because I thought my, my landlord had come to the door and said it. <laughs> That's how loud it was. And then you would think if this was like instant success, I write the book, it's incredibly successful. No, I spent two years going back and forth trying to be a screenwriter. <laughs> and then I would work on the book. I'd be like, this is an incredible idea. Then I wrote the book proposal and I wrote it the way I thought I should write it which was, I call my faux therapist voice. <laughs> and everybody turned it down. But I got some really good feedback from two of the eight editors. I took that feedback and, and the rest went on to be successful. That's amazing. But what's important is that not that I was successful. That it's important that I actually stopped and listened eventually. That's what I want to stress from that story. Yeah, and also for me, what's remarkable is the immediacy with which, you know, you called your friend, you made the declaration, I'm going to stop this for a month and boom, it was like you literally letting go of something made space in your life for you to hear or be available for something else. That's, it's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. And I, you know, I, I, it was, and it, and it became such a successful book and it launched my whole career every now and then in my, when I, and I talk about this in the book, I think that I would, go, I would come to these other junctures in my life where I didn't know what to do and things weren't working. And I would want that again, right? I would want that clarity again, but I don't, I don't know. It just, that, didn't come until this book. Wow. Yeah. So back to that thing we were talking about, about aliveness and our emotional immune system, and we close ourselves off to, to that aliveness. Two names you gave to things I see myself doing that I didn't have a name for. I mean, I might have called it escaping or distracting or rejecting maybe, but you, you use this term shadow comforts, and you also use this term time monsters. Mm-hmm. Will you talk about what are shadow comforts and what are time monsters? Yeah, so shadow comforts are the idea, actually, that Brene Brown has quoted me on a couple of times, which I've been, so, I've been so thankful for. And I came up with it intuitively, and I loved when she and I got to know each other a little bit that she confirmed that that's what her research had shown. Actually, her research backed up my intuition. And I just want to say that because I think so many of us are intuitive observers, and we can include that in our work. We can own it. So shadow comforts are the things we do that we think will make us feel renewed, relaxed, restored, chilled out, and they actually make us feel worse. They feel numb or drained, or they encourage that story in our head that we can't trust ourselves to take care of ourselves. 
And time monsters are a little different. They're the things that we do that we really have to often do in life. Maybe email. Email is my favorite, right? Email, yes, it has to get done, but I will do it before the thing I really desire or before the things that will bring me alive because it gives me a nice little dopamine hit. It makes me feel like, yeah, I got something done. And then of course the time monster can just expand and expand <laughs> until it's eating up that time that you would actually be doing things that are maybe more creative or fulfilling or scary. Yeah. And I look at that and when I, like when I see myself doing that, I don't always understand it. No, me I, neither. Yeah. I do have the, I, I suppose I choose to believe that it's some part of myself serving me, even when it looks like a self-defeating behavior. <laughs> well, I actually think that's a great point because we need shadow comforts. I mean, supposedly the Dalai Lama, when he's here in this country or other Western countries, loves to go in electronic stores and look at stuff, <laughs> right? So we need to we need to chill out. We need like, you know, I mean, the pandemic's a great example, right? People are watching a heck of a lot of Netflix and other shows. It, it's just that can we choose it in a way and allow it in a way that actually nurtures us? So it's not that we have to be mindful or intentional all the time. I mean, oh, that makes me want to scream. But that I don't want to just settle for what I'm doing. You know, do I, I really want to savor it and choose it? And then it becomes healthier, maybe. Well, and, and I appreciate you know, something you wrote here as well, when you talk about when we frame these shadow comforts and time monsters as substitutions for true self-care or true desire, and we stop thinking about them as moral failures, which they never are, we create more space to make the choices we want and to shore our spirits up to bother more self. And then, and then this, if there was seriously, if there was one thing that people took away from this, and I hope there's more than one thing, but this idea here to continue your words you say self-blame and self-improvement will not ever help you experience more of what you want ever what do you mean self-improvement <laughs> isn't that what we're all about self-blame self-blame i could get but yeah. what, why do you say that that self-blame and self-blame and self-improvement will not help you experience more of what you want ever well my definition of self-improvement it's based on the idea that there's something wrong with you you have to fix so versus wow that fight I keep having with my partner is really annoying and I don't like it and it makes us both feel bad. I wonder what we could learn about each other. I wonder how we could learn to handle that differently. We had my husband and I had a fight last night. <laughs> That's why I'm thinking of that. I wonder, and we were trying you know, to handle it differently. So bringing curiosity and a growth mindset feels so different in my body than self-improvement. Self-improvement to me has always felt like something that I was going to get done and then I was going to be done and I was finally going to be good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that calls to mind for me, this story that you share in the book about Oprah, because that seemed to me like one of these totally. where it would be that check the box day. I got a call from Oprah's producer. She's invited me to come to Illinois. You know, will you share what that experience of getting the call from Oprah's team was like? It was a hot day. I lived in Santa Barbara and I was married to my first husband and he handed me the phone. We're standing in his office and he handed me the phone and said, it's Oprah's producer. And I was like, oh, you're joking, right? That was what everyone would say. Well, he wasn't joking. And it was Oprah's producer inviting me to come. But here's the thing. And this is what's so fascinating about our minds, right? She was calling to invite me to be a guest on a show. She wasn't calling me for my long held very specific clingy desire, which was to be Oprah loves your book. Oprah loves you. Oprah is giving you the seal of approval. And what I chose to hear was the 
was the latter, not the former, which is, so they wanted me to come be a guest on a show for women who were afraid to eat alone. And I had about as much desire to talk to women who were afraid to eat alone. <laughs> I did have none. I had a young child at the time. I was like, what do you mean? Bring a book, enjoy yourself, chew <laughs> <laughs> yeah. your food for a change. <laughs> but I said, yes, of course, because I thought I was going to get what I wanted. And what I wanted was Oprah's seal of approval. I wanted someone to tell me I deserved to write my books. By that point, I was on my fourth book. I had, I don't know, 400,000 copies of my books in print by that time. I'd had a lot of success and yet I didn't believe in it and I didn't know how to choose and own my own work, my own voice, my own insights. And so I went on Oprah and it was an awful experience and I did a terrible job and I looked like a deer in headlights and I was wearing my girlfriend's borrowed suit, which was about as not my style as it possibly could be. I looked like a banker cheerleader <laughs> and wearing really expensive shoes that I bought that I made myself wear for years because I was like, damn it, I spent the money on those shoes, but every time I wore them, they made me feel bad. And yeah, it was just, it was, I felt like a fake and I felt like a fraud and I walked off to stage so disappointed in myself so disappointed in myself because I so wanted this thing but what it took me two years to understand I am NOT a fast learner it took me two years to understand that it wasn't about Oprah it wasn't about my performance that day which would have been fine if I had been talking about something I cared about it was that I was looking for someone outside of me to tell me I was good enough that I was deserved to, to write my books you know, and nobody can do that. No, here's the, here's the cliche of the interview. Nobody can do that for you. Right? Not even Oprah. Well, and it sounds like, I mean, that's a massive insight and, and good for you, you know, for getting it. And maybe a more friendly term is a patient learner. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You, you oh man, got I'm the... taking that from now on. I'm a patient learner. I'm, <laughs> I'm a, a learner. learner. I'm a determined learner. <laughs> but you talk about that there were others in your life who helped you. And I think it was Marcia. Is that oh, the lady's name? Mar Marcy. 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 What did she help you? You know, she was, I went on a women's canoe trip. So I was 27 or probably 26, 27. I don't. I mean, it was a wild series of coincidence how I even ended up on this trip, which I won't go through because they're so convoluted, but needless to say, it really felt like it was meant to be, and I'm not a person who uses that term easily. And it was, I had never spent time with women. I had never done women's ritual. I had, I loved being outdoors. I was always an outdoors person. I'd never gone whitewater canoeing before. And it was a profound trip for me. And two of the leaders, one was our canoe leader and Beverly, and one was Marcy Tellinger. And she just, she was that, I mean, at the time she was 40, but I thought she was old. <laughs> she seemed like such a wise woman to me. But the thing that was so wise was I, I got up the courage at some point on the trip to tell her about the title for my book because I'd had the idea, but I hadn't written it yet. And tell her like, and, and beg, begging her, is this a good idea? Should I do it? And she turned it around on me and said, well, do you want to do it? And, and this was the woman's comfort book? This is the woman's comfort book, right? So, so you heard the voice that wasn't enough? I mean, come on. <laughs> no, man, I'm telling you, I'm a patient learner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Marcy wouldn't tell me. She wouldn't give me that thing that the little girl in me, I guess, wanted, which was tell me it's a good idea. Tell me it's going to work, right? Because that's a huge point of the book. We want a plan and we want a guarantee that it's going to work and that's that's how desire also gets cut off 
And while the discover the desire for what's next is the subtitle, there's no what's next plan in my book. Here's, here's the bad news, everybody. Because if you have a plan too soon, which I tried over and over again in my life, it's too small. It's the old plan. It's the old you. It ha you haven't been reconstituted with a new relationship with desire yet. And so Marcy wouldn't let me do it wise woman that she is <laughs> and she made me go do you want this what do you have to say about it what and, and she did that for me and several times in my life after that sounds like a, a good friend and a great coach yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. a great coach before i knew what a coach was <laughs> yeah that's awesome you talk about something called conditions of enoughness that seemed to me when i read it like a really really useful concept to have when making plans or evaluating options. Will you talk about what are conditions of enoughness? How do you use them and why do they matter? Yeah, so I went through coaching school in 2001 and I did an ontological coaching program, which I loved because it totally went with my Buddhist and yoga background and, and just a, the whole idea of witnessing and observing and we're made up of narrative structures. And one of the ideas from that program was something called conditions of satisfaction. And it was about business relationships. So you and I, let's say we go into business together and we decide like, what are the promises we're making to each other and how will we know we're satisfying them? Or a simple example, you ask someone to finish a report. Well, what does finish a report mean? When would they finish it by? You know, what are the, what makes the there there? So I use that for a while in my coaching. And then what I realized over time is that the actual thing that we need to learn to be satisfied with is ourselves and our promises we make to ourselves. But that's until we can declare what's satisfying for us, it's really hard to feel like enough. But that's a big concept. So then I tried to bring it down into really nitty gritty. What does it look like for you? And what's enough for you in terms of what you do to move your body today? Or this is a, it's a tool I use with writers all the time because writing can of course never feel like enough. Or your business, the moves you're gonna make to build your business today. So it works really well for things that feel unwieldy, hard to you know pin down. I used to use it a lot with my mom. My mom died of Alzheimer's and I would visit her every day and I it was so painful and so hard and quite frankly so boring. And I would use conditions of enoughness for that so that I would so I could so I could walk out of there with some sense of restfulness in, you know, because it was never enough for her. She wanted me to stay as long as I could. What's an example? How did you, how did you apply that? I mean, because that I understand is very challenging. You it's know, very challenging. At the end of their lives and you're there providing support and it's hard enough to manage your own psychology and, you know, there you're, you're serving another person and being there mentally and emotionally. How, how did you, what did applying conditions of enoughness look like in that kind of situation? Sure. I should probably back up and tell you what the four elements are of them, and then I can give an example. So the four elements are you declare what is enough in facts, not assessments or opinions for the, the given thing you're going to do. So I'll break that down with my mom. It would be visit her every day. So that's a fact. I know whether I visit or not. Did I walk in the building or not? Um, and then the second thing is to give it some kind of time or frequency container. So for my mom, it would, it would be visit every day is the time container. And then I would add stay until dinner is served. So I knew roughly when dinner was served. So I knew my visit would be 45 minutes or an hour and I wasn't being you know rigid about it. Then the third thing is to only declare what you're going to do on an ordinary day. One of the things that really is difficult for creative people and coaches and, you know, all of us who aren't building things we can see with our hands is that we 
we think every day we're going to be some kind of robot or amazing, you know, like superhero. We're not going to need to rest or eat or go to the bathroom or we're not going to get a headache and need to lay down for 20 minutes, right? So it's really, I call it lowering the bar. So you actually know you can do these conditions of enoughness on the next given day that you're setting them. And then yeah, the fourth and, is, yeah. I'm sorry, to, sorry yeah. to interrupt. And of course, no one is going to interrupt us. <laughs> Nobody's going to want Ever. anything. I have a Never. question. The car's not going to break down. You're not going to get a weird email request that you have to run and do from your boss. None of that's going to happen. Yeah. Technology is all going to work perfectly. Oh, yes. Yeah. The internet never so, goes out. Yeah. yeah okay. that, those days. Has that, when, when's the last time that day came? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then and number the, four? Yeah. Number four is, is, is acknowledge, celebrate, put your hand on your heart, I did what I said I would do. And this is the hardest thing for people because, and this is where we start to retrain our brain to notice, what do you act, do I actually do what I said I would do? And instead of focusing on, oh, well, I did what I said I would do, but I could have done more. Or I wrote my 500 words, but they were crap. And then what we're, t we're totally reinforcing the negativity bias. So this little tiny five second pause where you go, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I look so funny when I do it. I put my thumbs up, you know, and I do a little dance. And I do this usually after a long run, especially outside. I'm like, oh, my God, if anybody saw me, they would be like, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so with my mom, it would look like going to visit. And then and then I would I would set conditions of enoughness, like when I want to correct her to take a deep breath instead. And this was in the early-ish stages of mom's illness, disease. So she was still upright and talking and everything, but she was very out to lunch. We can, she had, there was a lot of um, hallucinations. Yeah, so they work really well. I don't use them for everything in my life. I use them for things that are big or hard to manage or where that feeling of not enoughness is coming rushing in. Yeah, I love that. And I can see how that could be so useful. You know, I think back a lot to a coaching conversation I once had where, you know, a client was talking about feeling like he was an inadequate father. Yes, yes. And it's like, well, how would you know when you are? <laughs> You know, exactly. and I wish I had this framework at the time to be able to say, well, you know, how do you define it? Declare it in facts and you know that, but that's, that's really practical. So yeah, yeah I thank like you it. for that. I use it a lot and I've, I've, I've probably taught it now for 10 or 15 years and people still come back and say, that is like the most helpful thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. And especially as you point out, you know, and anybody who's engaged in, you know, personal growth for more than a year or a month probably <laughs> has seen, you know, our brain is not intended to help us be happy it's intended to help us survive exactly and, and so we're constantly critical and yeah. you know looking for what's going to hurt us and what what could go wrong and that kind of thing so this is is a really useful tool to help against that one area like one thing you talk about in the book that i really appreciated because i had similar i've had similar feelings in my life was around a trip you took on a ferry and you talk really honestly in this book about experiences you've had with depression. Will you talk a little bit about that, how that's been a part of your life, what it's been like, and particularly maybe that day on the ferry, if you could paint a picture of what happened that day? Yeah. So depression, I had my first depression probably in seventh grade, and I had definitely deep clinical depressions throughout my life, and then more of a sense of that low-grade dystymia. And there was a, about a two or three year period in my life where things were really awful. Um, it was a long, stressful period. I called it the Job affliction period. <laughs> it included both my dad and my then husband having cancer at the same time, a friend dying, maybe a suicide, 
I had a magazine column that I was fired from. I had a spokesperson job I was fired from on the same day that I found out that my friend had died. I ended up getting a divorce. Of course, my, my dad did die. He had pancreatic cancer. I wasn't with him when he died. Really, it was bad. The cat died the same time that my dad died. I mean, it was just one thing after another. I could never even... That is biblical. Holy <laughs> it cow. It was so biblical. And, and it was actually over. And I had met this wonderful man who I'm now married to. And I a lot of things were good, but I couldn't let go. I, I couldn't let go of the mistakes I felt I had made. And so I really slid into a, a dark place. And we lived on an island, Bainbridge Island, and I would, we would ride the ferry from Seattle. And I started to have a sick fantasy that I would indulge in, which is when I was on the ferry by myself in the, on the car deck, I would imagine jumping off the ferry. I never imagined dying. I never, it was not really suicide ideation. It was a fantasy because what I would say in my head over and over again is then I'll be done. And I was so tired of being stuck and unhappy. And I think I was so tired of beating myself up and the self cruelty that I had become a master at. But I, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have the awareness really of what I was doing to myself, which is scary given how much <laughs> training and work I've done on myself. But finally, one day I was on the ferry and I was, it was like slipping into a comfortable coat. You know, I would sit there, I would look around and see, what is, can anybody see me? Where would I go over the rail? And I'm sitting there having that fantasy and crackle, crackle, crackle goes the loudspeakers and the captain comes on and says, man overboard. And it turns out a woman had jumped right when I was thinking that. And I was, I swear to God, I looked around in my car like, did I do that somehow? Did my, I don't, I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it. And I watched her get pulled out. She was fine, she survived. It was a summer day and you can still die in that water because it's so cold. And some people die just at the shock. But you will, if no one rescues you, rescues you, I can't say that word right now. <laughs> if you are not rescued, you will, you know, 20, 25 minutes because it's just, you're, it's just too cold. But they got to her, they got her out. And then I'm supposed to now tell you that that changed everything in my life. But here's how clever our minds are. I didn't remember that story for years. I just blocked it out. Now I did stop that fantasy <laughs> and I did in the next four years really create an incredible life for myself that became the basis for the book. But it wasn't like, oh my God, this is the moment that my life turns around. It was more like, I mean, I know it helped me, but I wasn't profoundly conscious of it at the time. Yeah, it's incredible how when events like that happen, they're not something that instantly transforms us. Right. Sometimes they do. Like there's some stories in the book of people who had those moments when they were in their darkness or they were in their stuckness or their why bother period. And they, something like that happened in one case, somebody's mother-in-law dropped dead and they woke up and started changing things. So I think it does happen for people. But for me, I'm just like, I wish <laughs> there's that yeah. patient learner again. But now I look back on it and I'm like, I'm very thankful that, that it happened. And I'm, I'm glad that that woman's okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. My favorite sentences, I know I shouldn't have favorites. <laughs> you can have I favorites. I think Don't my tell favorite... the other sentences. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite sentences in the book, you talk about, well, you say, you write. You become the person who can write the book by writing the book. You aren't that person yet. And the only way to become that person is to write what you want to write. So damn true and such an inconvenient truth. <laughs> 
Yeah, that that was so amazing. And and for me that, you know, that was right along with that idea of being in this gap, being in the gap between what what we're capable of now and what we want. And many times I think we experience that gap, that delta between where we are and where we want to be. That's a problem, right? It's something to be overcome or, you know, resolved at best, perhaps accepted. But I love that you point out the gap will always be part of a well-lived life. Like, how do you live a life where you are following desire to, you know, be open to life, gain the the benefit of experiencing that aliveness as it comes and whatever else comes along with it, the growth, the learning, the friendship, you know, that kind of thing, while not just being defeated by the fact that we never arrive? How do you, how do you stay in that gap? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I kind of hope the whole book answers that question (laughs) because it really is the big question. I mean, it really is the big question, especially as you age and you see the people who give up, they become bitter, they become smaller, they become stunted and you see the people who don't. And I'm not saying some of it's not luck and, and privilege and genetics. I mean, it's a complicated, you know, formula there, but very specifically for me in the gap, it's learning to stop there stop there and notice I'm in the gap and remind myself of exactly what you just said, Brian. There's not a problem. There's nothing the matter. I get this sort of anxious striving. That's my response in the gap. Other people might get frozen or defeated. I'm like, okay, I gotta fix it. I gotta make it good. I gotta get there, right? Oh my God, how exhausting is that? (laughs) So it's to like relax and then to welcome what I'm experiencing, to welcome the uncertainty, because there's a secret thing about desire. You're never quite fully satisfied. There's always a little itchiness. There's always a little longing. It might be because of the way our brains are built. There's different theories, but it's very rare in our lives. And we go, ah, desire. I feel so satisfied and full. Almost always there's like immediately you finish eating that perfect fig and you're like, oh, the fig is done. I want another fig. Yeah. So there's an there's like a learning to be. It's like it, I guess we could say it's mindfulness or acceptance or definitely relaxing there, welcoming. Yeah, I th- I think that is so profound too. What you're pointing to, and it's taken me a lot of years to even admit that, and I I still forget it on a daily basis. That you know, there's some aspect of desire that can never be fully satisfied. It is. It is. It's hard. I I experience it sometimes in my relationship with my husband where I'm just like, I want to meld with him. I want to crawl inside of his skin, you know, or with a meal, sometimes a really good time with friends, you know, oh, it's ending. And that's the place that we start to build, I think, a much more mature spiritual, psychological well-being to it's not about it's not about giving it a cliche. Oh, everything passes away. It's about really feeling all of the feelings in that unsatisfied slight edge and yeah there's lots of days that i'm like screw that (laughs) let's have another brownie (laughs) yeah i'm gonna eat the whole box exactly i'm gonna make myself sick (laughs) well and i also loved and you probably have this experience where when you read a book and you know you read it over a period of days or or weeks and there's ideas from it that persist with you you know while you're just thinking about the book or falling asleep or whatever and one of those for me that I had never heard before was this this line from Rilke about no forcing and no holding back. I love that poem so much. And yeah, what a beautiful what a beautiful line. And to me, as I hear you answer that question about how to stay in that gap, mm-hmm. um, about remaining open with no forcing and no holding back, it can sound poetic. But for anybody who's this is their 
I don't know, inquiry in life. I hope that's useful because it's, it's definitely useful for me. So thank you for pointing You're me to welcome. that. You're yeah, welcome. I've used that poem so many times when I've taught. It's in, I'm looking at my bookshelf. It's in the Book of Hours. It's translated by Anita Barrows and Joanne Macy, the Book of Hours. So yeah, no forcing and no holding back. It's just it, right? And it's just it. It's the instructions for living. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's beautiful. Well, before we before we transition, there is there is one other story that I would love for you to tell if you're willing. But even before that, what if anything else feels like it's worth covering related to why bother or anything else about your life or your work that we haven't touched on just yet? Yeah, I think this is is germane to no forcing, no holding back, and it's really one of the the other big ideas in the book, which is that you don't find your bother, you don't get your bother on again alone. There, this isn't about oh my God, I have to reinvent myself from the, you know, the ground up, or this is some kind of big effort I have to make. It's about opening to life. Life never gives up on us. Life is always there. Have you ever, have you ever been with someone when they died or with, you know, an animal or a, a person and the life is gone and you're like, wow, it's so profound. It's so tangible. The life is gone. And I really, hold on to that, that life is here and it wants to rush in if I will just make a little bit of an effort. So you're not getting your bother on by yourself. You're just, you're, the support is there. The life is there. It wants to carry you down the river with no forcing and no holding back. You just got to open up to it a little bit. <laughs> I love that idea. And talking about this idea that we don't need to, to go it alone, so to speak, this is exactly the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is this uh, experience of oneness. Oh, that, yeah. that you relate. And it's kind of experience that is so, is so beautiful that I suppose reading it, I, for myself, I go, wow, I'm kind of surprised she shared that because I imagine she regards that as very sacred. And yet here she is sharing it with me and all of her readers. And clearly you weren't alone when it happened, but will you talk about that? I mean, what, what have you learned about oneness and, and how did you learn it? You know, I think I probably have whatever the wiring is in the brain to seek spiritual experiences. And that was also something that started very young for me. I started meditating at a really young age, not because my parents taught me, they were, you know, it was because my sister, an older sister had a copy of Be Here Now. And over my life, I was lucky enough to have those experiences of dissolving that sense of separateness and identity and feeling that grace of there's, we're just, there's just how I know I am part of it all, but I'd always had them alone. So in meditation or once in a lake in Canada after a sweat lodge, I didn't even know what a sweat lodge was. And this was the first and only time I'd had it while I was being witnessed. And that was very profound for me. It was a group of friends. Um, we were on a kind of business retreat together, really. And it was a very spontaneous experience. There was, we had not been meditating. We had not been doing drugs. There was nothing. And it came over me and upon me. And I think what made it so amazing and also okay to share in the book was because it's about being seen. And there's such a deep, there was such an old story in me that kept me stuck in my why bother periods in different times in my life that it wasn't okay to be me and be seen being me. And so to have that spontaneous experience of oneness that, I, I mean, I literally kept saying two things over and over again while it was happening. I was sitting on a couch, we were in a rented house and I kept saying, it's here, it's here, it's really here. And then I would say, I can't leave it. I can't leave it. And luckily my friends were all 
two of them very experienced spiritual practitioners. Everybody was an experienced coach and facilitator. So they just held me there. I went with it. Yeah. And, you know, writing about it was so hard because it's so hard to put into words. I find myself tongue-tied now. But I can feel it. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And hearing you talk about how hard that was, not to say that how long it took was an indication of how, how hard writing the book was, but why did the book take you more than a decade to write? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wrote my last book, The Life Organizer, and I swore even before that I would never write another self-help book. I'm like, I've said what I need to say. There does not need to be any more self-help books in the world. I got nothing. I got nothing left. So I spent a few years before The Life Organizer, which was 11 years ago, writing fiction. And I fiction, I loved it. I loved screenplays. I loved making up worlds. And yet there was a part of me, and I have my story about why this was, that kept pulling me back to my work around coaching, around leading retreats, around working with women to make more well, clearly it's a, it's a signature theme. It's a signature theme, but I was denying that signature theme. And if I hadn't denied it, I probably would have successfully written those novels. But who knows? We'll see. There's always the future. And then I wrote The Life Organizer, and then I started to work. On, I would just keep working on different ideas for different books, and they wouldn't work. They would fall apart. I would lose my joy for them. I would send my agent an email. I've got the best idea for a book. And she'd be like, great, write the book proposal. And I'd be not write the book proposal. And then I gave a speech in Seattle at a women's conference, and I used these different Job-like affliction stories. <laughs> and I used the poem, Barnes Burned Down, Now I Can See the Moon, to structure the stories. And I got off that stage, and I'm like, damn it, that is the best speech I've ever given. I love that. And then one of the other speaker's husbands was there, and he grabbed me and said, oh my god, those are incredible stories. You have to tell those stories. So I started writing a memoir. And I spent four years and 500 pages, and it didn't work. It just didn't work as a narrative memoir. But out of that, I could see, I finally saw like this, this thing that I did in my life over and over again, which was not to stop and ask the question, what do I really want next? And to let myself have the time to discover and feel the desire and really make a choice, whether it was the choice to go back or do something else, or do something familiar, but to really be regenerated. And then the book, this book wrote itself in six months. Wow, that's awesome. But, you know, and some revisions after that. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Okay, well, with your permission, let's transition to the enlightening lightning round. Oh, wait a minute, I gotta go get enlightened. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> You're Quick, <great>. hurry up. <laughs> okay, all right, question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. <laughs> Life is like a beautiful day when you see the clouds in the sky. Number two, Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Ooh, man, I don't got one. Uh, let me think. What is it? Oh, how about self-improvement is a bad idea? Okay. <laughs> Number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I think I would pick the Joseph Campbell quote you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. I feel like we ought to find that exact quote because I know it's... Yeah, it's, it, it's in The Power of Myth. And so, it's the experience of being alive. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember it exactly either, but I know it's in The Power of Myth because I've searched for it many times. Okay, so people say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. 
I think that what we're seeking is an experience of being alive so that our life experiences on the purely physical plane will have resonances with our own innermost being and reality so that we actually feel the rapture of being alive. How about my t-shirt says, feel the rapture of being alive. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I I thought for sure you were going to go with that or personal improvement's a bad idea. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Awesome. Number four, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Oh, I would probably say it is the Untethered Soul, the Michael Singer book. Why that book? I think he does such a good job about talking about oneness. So you can feel it, you know? I don't know that I've ever done one of the exercises in the book or anything like that, but I just love, I feel there's a transmission in it. And then the other ones would be most, a lot of Pema Chodron's books. I've given those repeatedly. Yeah, she's pretty amazing too. One image that stays with me from The Untethered Soul was that image of the home shuttered in darkness Mm -hmm. and the light shining outside. Mine is the car, let the car go by. The car was like, whatever you're getting stuck by or hooked by the thought or the feeling, just let it go on by. Uh, (laughs) I always kind of see like a GTO. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I like that. What are you reading right now? You know, I just read a novel that Sue Monk Kidd wrote called The Book of Longing. She imagines Jesus's wife Hmm. and Jesus. It's the story of Jesus's wife and her longing and her desire to be a writer. Yeah, I just finished that last night. I love fiction. I read a lot of fiction. Question number five. So prior to the pandemic, <laughs> you, you've traveled a ton. Maybe that's the way to phrase this question. So you've traveled a lot in your life. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Earplugs. Uh, any specific kind? Do you have like the molded Ch- kind? No, you get no, the- no, just the cheapies you buy at the drugstore. And I, buy, I bring a multiple with me and I wear them on to sleep and on the plane. And yeah. They're so much smaller than noise-canceling earphones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Anything you do, any special requests on planes or hotels or with organizers or anything like that that you do? No, I like that idea, but I'm also like somebody, I'm a super practical, no fussy kind of person. So I think the other thing that I always take with me is a water bottle. I'm a super water drinker. Well, pretty simple. You'll live longer that way. I think that's good for you. Okay. Number speaking of this could lead into that. I'm not trying to set up the question, but number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age? Well, I started running at 50, almost three. So I fit and I, and then a year later I took up trail running at high altitudes, not all the time. I mean, I run at 5,000, I we live at 5,000 feet. So I run there regularly, but we'll go up into, you know, eight, 10,000 feet and run. That was about as unexpected as I, I mean, I made fun of runners. I'm like, stop that. That was really bad. That's a bad idea. That looks painful. <laughs> I believed all the things that it was bad for you and bad for your joints. And, and it definitely has added so much joy to my life. And it's probably going to add years. There's some research that running adds years to your life. It's very good for your brain. Yeah. No, that's great. And that, I remember the story in, in the book where you talk about, you know, this is an example perhaps of where someone witnessing you yes, yes, can help Jade. you have an image of yourself yes. in a way that you hadn't perceived yourself. Will you talk about that? What happened? Sure. Yeah. So part of writing the memoir that failed 
was realizing in telling my own story, I realized the places that I was hurting myself. I started to get free of my story and was able to bother in a new way. And some of that happened before we moved to Colorado. And we moved here for my husband's work. And so when we moved here, I really realized that I had made myself, I had exiled myself from friendships. I had this story that nobody liked me and I didn't belong on my island. And I really started to see how it was the signals I sent, the choices I made, the, the, the things that I did that really were feeling that I wasn't, I didn't deserve to belong. And so I promised myself I would say yes to everything when I moved to Colorado. And we happened to move into this neighborhood that has some of the most special people and has a ton of things going on. And one of them was a walking running group. So I thought, well, I walk, run, my God, you're gonna be kidding me, I walk. So I went and I, there was that day, there was one other walker, wonderful Kelly, and she walked more slowly than I did. And I, being a little driven, type A kind of person was like, I gotta get my exercise in. So I, but I couldn't walk off and leave her because that would be rude <laughs> because I'm also kind of Southern and you gotta have good manners. So I said, Kelly, I'm gonna try this running thing. And I took off running and I was hooked, that was it. And after that night of running, we all came back together as a group, the walking running group. And the leader of it, his name is Jabe, who's my neighbor and dear friend now, looked at me and she said, you're a runner. And I looked at her and went, I am not. And she said, yes, you are. And she has such a gift to see people and and you feel so seen and so heard. And that was it. I became a well, runner. Yeah. That, that's great. <laughs> well, good for you. I, I happen to love running. So cool. I, I loved hearing your story of yeah. reaching my husband now does too. I made him a runner. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And to be able to run in the flat irons. Yeah. You know, that's pretty cool. It's beautiful. Yeah, we go we go to, up to Rocky Mountain National a lot. We're that way in bed. Lions. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Science is a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish that every American knew that as well. <laughs> What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Oh, shut up. <laughs> I mean, really, I just alluded, Bob and I got into a spat last night. And man, if I can just be quiet and stop just stop stop defending myself stop trying to explain it it's just like i just just like i am the dog digging the hole as fast as i can and the dirt is going everywhere so really just stopping and being quiet and not for me i go on the defensive and i go to shame and my story is i'm not I, i'm not smart enough i'm not good enough i can't i've done something wrong and then that triggers him to feel like he's done something wrong and that triggers all of his family stories and we are down the garden path in the worst possible way so boy last night i did a pretty good job not perfect but i did a good job of just go yep stop <laughs> so yeah stop and then really bring some self-compassion to the moment because that's a really great way to stop the shame spiral for, for, for most people yeah sounds like you and bob really are perfect for each other <laughs> i don't know last night i was like <laughs> but only but, for a few minutes <laughs> okay question number nine is about money mm. aside from compound interest what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something that you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it i think the most important thing that i'm still learning is money is not a sign is not the right metric for me. 
I grew up very much in the entrepreneurial household. When I got my first job out of college, I called my dad from LA to say, dad, I got a job. And he, there was silence on the other end of the phone. And then he said, why'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you wanted to be a writer. So very much my dad was a self-made entrepreneur. His, 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 his family was. And so I was raised in that religion, but he also very much saw himself as his network. And so even though I always knew that was not a great thing and not a good idea, not true, I got a little bit of it, right? And it's not formed me. Obviously, you don't become a self-help writer if you want to be rich, <laughs> you know, but it is in there. So I think that's the thing I'm still learning. And then I think what I always do in terms of my business, because I do have a business around my writing, is I look at not my gross, but my net. What am I actually keeping? What are my expenses? That was a great thing that I got from my dad, because I think there's a lot of stuff in our industry where it looks really good, but people are actually deeply in debt. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, and I want nothing to do with that, both ethically and personally. Yeah. No, that's a big, that's a big lesson that I think a lot of people have yet to really understand is the difference between income and net worth and, yeah. you know, top line and bottom line. And all right. That. What are you keeping? What are yeah. you keeping? <laughs> that includes yeah. after taxes. <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, speaking of money, one of the things that I have done as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to share your experiences and your wisdom with me and everyone listening is I have gone on to Kiva.org and I have made a hundred dollar micro loan Yay! on your behalf oh, gosh. to an entrepreneur named Palalo who lives in Tonga. Wow. And she'll use this to plow her plantation, buy equipment and support her family. She's 63 years old and she and her husband still run their own farm. Wow. Thank you so much. I love that. I love Kiva. Yeah, it's amazing. I always feel so bad when they can't pay it back. I just want to say, it's okay. It's okay. I, <laughs> I don't I care if you give me the dollar twenty back to make it an even $25 or $50. It's okay. I know, seriously. <laughs> but I know like, it's part of how it works. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. And it gives me, you know, hope that the internet isn't all just pornography and cat videos, you know, but yeah. <laughs> it's connecting us in ways that really yes. do improve the quality of life. Not that pornography and cat videos don't. But. No, I'm, well, maybe just the cat videos. <laughs> so I'll ask this here as well. If people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Well, you can always find me at jenniferloudon.com. And if you go to the sign up button that you'll see at the top, you can get a free chapter of the book if you want to test it out and get a sense of my voice and the ideas in it. And if you're like, wow, no, I love the book. I already bought the book. And you want some gifts that we give you for buying the book, you can go to jenniferloudon.com forward slash why dash bother. And you can find out about those gifts there. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So the last part of the interview really is around writing the creative process, maybe a little bit of exploration into marketing and promotion. Sure. I know that's massive topics on all that. And we've already been talking for more than an hour. How are you doing, by the way? I'm good. You're good? Okay. Man, there's so much that we could talk about here. Let me start by asking you about this. To get this latest book, Why Bother Done, you worked with page two books. I did. In the past, I think you had some of the big New York publishers. Mm -hmm. I've always had a big five or a big independent bookstore, a bookstore <laughs> publisher. Yes. I've always been traditionally published. Tell me, if, if you will, like who is page two? How did you get connected with them? Why did you go with them? What has your experience been like? 
anything and everything related to that. Sure. So page two is a real, they're their own thing. There's nothing else that I know like page two. They're a Canadian company made up of former publishing executives and designers, people who worked at the different big publishers who decided they wanted to do it their own way. And so they act and talk, talk and quack, just like a publisher. They get distribution just like a publisher, but the author pays the bills. So it is self-publishing in that I am the company that's saying, here's, I'm writing the check, but on the, it doesn't function like self-publishing and it doesn't fun function like hybrid publishing, which can be a, it's not something I'm loving the way that's going for a lot of people. So we, they don't really have a name for what they call it. The best we came up with was bespoke. <laughs> bespoke yeah. yeah. You know, and I found them from my friend, Michael Bungay senior, who I'm in a mastermind with and have been for many years. And he was trying forever to write what became his bestseller, The Coaching Habit, and get it published by his publisher for his second book, Do More Great Work, which is, I cannot actually read the, oh God, I can't remember the name. Anyway, big publisher. And they kept turning him down and turning him down. And one day on one of our mastermind calls, I said, why are you doing this to yourself? You have an company. You're great at design. You're great at promotion. Why are you trying to get them to take this book and writing the book proposal over and over again? It'd be going on for like a year, two years. And he was like, wow, why am I not doing that? And then he found page two and had a really good experience with them. And then when I decided to go this route and I could talk about why I had been talking to them on and off for a year and was like, yeah, they seem like they really know what they're doing. And it's been a great experience. I will say that page two doesn't know, and I don't think anybody really knows how to market a book, but I have chops and experience with it and I'm always willing to learn and grow. So I didn't expect them to, and they try, but I just think marketing a book is something that is so unique to the book and to the ecosystem that you're in and the goals that you have. Yeah, no doubt. Marketing and it, it continues to change. It exactly. More nuanced on everything from you know, analytics and social media channels and, you know, PR, all this. So for sure, let me go back to maybe some of the more basic writing type questions like this. Who's been influential in your development as a writer and what have you learned from them? Oh gosh, there's a writing teacher in Seattle. Her name is Priscilla Long and she has a book out, The Portable, The, the Writer's Portable Mentor. And studying with Priscilla years ago, and she's much more of a literary, she's a literary writer, she's not a self-help writer at all. That taught me so much about writing and about trying different forms and about working sentences and so much of that I hadn't gotten in my college education, which I did both some fiction classes as well as all the screenwriting classes. So she has been a big influence on me. I, Alice LaPlante is another writing teacher. I've never studied with her, but she, her books and her insights have really helped me a lot about uncertainty and curiosity. She has a wonderful quote about, uh, which I don't know off the top of my head, but I can certainly find for you. And it's about, there's a, there's a questioning, there's a longing when we write. And that in itself is what draws us forward, but it's not about pinning that down and answering it. And that was huge for me because I, I think I used to feel bad as a writer that I didn't feel like I was understanding everything or you know, pinning it down like a butterfly. And now I'm more comfortable. It's really the gap, right? It's the yeah. gap again. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And I see that you've got Mark Nepo, who's given a, yeah, a book for your book. I did. I got to know Mark. I was, I had this thing come out of the blue years ago 
And it was because of Angie Ahrens, who had met me once, but had become this, just loved me for some reason. And Mark was the, it was, he was the convener of it, but it was at the Fetzner Institute in Michigan. And they flew a bunch of writers and artists for an ex all expense paid retreat for a week. And so I got to spend that and get to know Mark there. And he's just as lovely as you think he could be. Yeah, he's he's amazing. He he was a guest on the show just about two months ago. And what you're saying now about writing totally reminds me of what he said, where his books are his teachers. Yes. And and part of why he's so prolific is that he doesn't write what he knows. He writes what he needs to know. He's so good about living in the unknown. He's so curious and so genuine. No, that, that really resonated with me and, and what you're saying now. You talk in your book, in Why Bother, you talk about the fact that writing in the morning with a latte in your hand <laughs> is something that you have cultivated <laughs> and you're not eager to give it up anytime soon. Tell me about that and any other rituals or routines you have around writing. So from this was hard one and the ritual when I'm writing and this, so this is not what I'm doing right now because I'm promoting, but when I'm writing a book, I get up in the morning, I meditate and then I have a laptop downstairs in the kitchen and I let myself check email. Oh my God, you're never supposed to check email first thing. That's but a time was, monster. Right, exactly. <laughs> but here's why it's not a time monster. A ticket without the latte. I want the latte really, really bad. <laughs> so it just five, 10 minutes, see if my team needs anything, if the client needs anything. So it's not there in my head going, and the other thing we know is if we do one or two tiny little things first thing, they give us a little dopamine hit, which helps us concentrate. Then I make the latte and the ironclad commitment that I have is once the latte is in hand, I go up the stairs to this office where freedom has been installed and is already active. So I and freedom is internet blocking software, everybody. And you can, if you, you can program it. So I had would program it to go out at five in the morning or something and block everything, email, internet, Facebook, Amazon, you name it, news sites. And then I was in my bubble. And then I had the comforting latte, you know? It was like a treat, which made it always easier. The other thing I do that's a habit that I really teach the writers that I work with is I always know where I'm gonna start my work. One of the reasons why we procrastinate as writers is we conflate or, or we put, we smush together, choosing what we're going to work on, where we're going to start, what our work of is the day with starting. So we sit down to write and we go, oh, what am I going to work on? That's really frightening for our brains. So I would always choose the day before. I might think about it on a run. I might, you know, think about it before I go to bed at night, maybe journal a little bit about it before. And you can change your mind. You can go in another direction, but you have a place to start. And that's so comforting. And then the other thing I would do related to that is if I'm working on a long book, or, you know, a longer project, I would have this tendency to go back and read and rewrite what I'd written the day before, which can eat up a lot of time. So I would paste the last few sentences of what I was working into a new document. So that's all I could see. And, and then whatever notes to myself of what, where I was going to go next, where to start. And I wasn't always perfect at that, but it definitely helped me with that sort of choosing, procrastinating, rewriting. Yeah, that, that's smart. That reminds me of something I once read and it was attributed to Hemingway about he would do that, right? Yes, he left the sentences in the middle, right? Right. Tell me when you're writing a book, do you write every day? And what does a typical day for you look like when you are writing a book? Did you, say, did you say difficult? 
Uh, typical. Typical. Yeah, um, typical. I do write every day. I usually take one or two days up on the weekends. My husband has what I call a straight job, <laughs> even though he works at home. And so he really taught me not to work seven days a week, which I used to do. And I found it to be a really good discipline to take the weekends off. Sometimes when the book was really cooking, I would work on a Saturday because I wouldn't want to be gone from it for too long. But I do not write every day when I'm not writing a book. Um, I write a piece of content or two every week, but I'm not doing creative writing every day. So I don't have that. Um, I think it's interesting to do, but it doesn't work for me to be writing all the time. And a typical day for me, is gonna, there's no typical day because I do so many other things, right? So I always plan the day before how long I'm going to write, what time I'm going to start. So if I know I have a busy day, I have to start earlier, it's going to be a shorter period of time. I totally use conditions of enoughness for that. Smart. And congruent. I'm congruent. Yes, <laughs> I am congruent. I'm like, take your own congruent. medicine, girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Do you give yourself a word count, a page count, a time, any? Yeah, like it really depends where I am in the project. So in first drafts, I would usually use time because words would tend to make me just blurble on, right? Just to fill up the words, but I'm not actually writing with intention. I'm not actually moving the, the thesis forward. I'm not making my argument. But in rewrites, in rewrites, I would often do scenes or sections, like how many sections do I want to get through today? I'm a big believer in planning backwards and saying, so this is where I want to be by this date. I didn't make my deadline to page two by a few weeks because my mom died. And so, you know, they're not set in stone or anything. The problem that I find with word count for people sometimes is they don't allow themselves the other writing business that needs to be done. They don't allow themselves time, what maybe it's, whether it's building characters or doing research or, you know, I'm working with someone right now on this really complicated memoir and, you know, she has to work out what goes where. She's got a lot of words and to just keep writing words at some point, it's never going to get finished. Yeah. And, and can comp compound the problem. Exactly. Oh my God, I've seen that so many times. So sometimes you have to pull back and go, okay, what am I got here? And how does it fit together? And what do I want it to do? And so I'm a big believer in doing that planning early if you can, and then referring to it a lot and having you know a really simple plan of who are your reader? Why are you doing this? What do you want the project to do for you? Why does anybody care? Right? You have to answer those questions with curiosity and love. Yeah. So... Right on. With your book, you used, as we've already talked about, you know, a number of stories, I think, to great effect. And you also included a lot of quotations that I thought were really wonderful and many that I hadn't heard before, which I appreciate. But where that leads me is when you went to structure the book, when you went to organize it, how do you keep yourself organized knowing what will go where? Oh, I use Scrivener. It's really good for my brain. It's a, a word processing program, everybody. It's cheap, it's 45 bucks. It's got a bit of a learning curve. <laughs> and at some point you just have to decide, is it gonna work for me or not and commit to it. You do not wanna use it in Word. Of course, once you are working with an editor, you're working in Word. You don't go back to Scrivener, just to say that. But um, Scrivener really works for me because of my learning disability. So it allows me to see how all the scenes and sections where they are in relationship to each other. And when I used to work in Word, I couldn't see that because each thing is, you know, you're either in the whole long scroll or you're in the discrete files and that would just mess with my head. So Scrivener's been huge for me. And then what it would allow me to do is it allows you to create a file and title it with nothing in it. 
and you can see what's, oh yeah, I need to write that still. And you can write whether it's a first draft or a second draft, you can tag everything. So it was really useful for, for my organization. Uh, and I probably use a quarter of what the program can do. Yeah. No, I've, I've worked in Scrivener before and I, I know it's very powerful. It is powerful. And for some people it's like, no, don't want it. I've also uh, have clients who use Ulysses which I think is, I've not tried. It's a, also inexpensive and it's supposedly like Scrivener, but easier. But I, I, again, I haven't used it. So that's been a huge lifesaver for me to organize my work and to have everything in one place and be able to see the flow of it. And what, is it making sense? Does one thing lead to the next? What's missing? There's an implicit assumption in this next question. So please forgive that. But <laughs> what's your writing kryptonite? Self-doubt. Definitely. I remember I had a writing coach years ago and she was like, the only thing that's going to stop you from, from writing this, this was the memoir that didn't work, but it didn't work structurally, is that you don't think you can do it. And that I think is most of our writing kryptonite, right? We think that we're not smart enough or unique enough or fast enough or I have a, I have a new client who's like, thinks that someone's going to steal her work before she can get it done. So some version of that, I think, is pretty much all of us. But mine was definitely, I also have a deep-seated story I've been working on for years that I'm stupid. So that would definitely be up there with self-doubt, kind of twined in there with it, right? I'm not smart enough to do this. I'm not, yeah, enough said. <laughs> when, when that comes up, how do, you, how do you deal with it? Well, boy, I tell you, a lifetime of working with that, a lot of witnessing it and not fusing with it. You know, I am not... I'm not that thought or feeling. I've really learned to bring a sense of uh, presence and self-compassion while I'm writing. While I'm writing, I keep going, keep st stay in the room, stay in the room, but bring in the, oh honey, of course writing is hard. Oh honey, of course you think you can't do this. This is just what you do. So I think part of it is experience and then bringing in those meditation and mindfulness kind of ideas while I'm working. That's been really helpful. And then I teach it a lot. So then you're like, well, you better do what you teach yeah, or you, you are so bullshit. You are <laughs> yeah. so not. I cannot. Yeah. I, I, I do not mean this as a bragging thing, but I cannot teach or say something publicly and not internalize it and try to live it imperfectly. Or I, I, I'm, uh, it's awful. I just want to crawl out of my skin. Yeah. Which I think is one of the best parts of being a teacher is, you know, it is, to, it is. to live yes. a, perhaps at a higher level than we would otherwise. Yes. Oh my God. You cannot get away with anything. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you about self-imposed deadlines. You know, this one for me that I've said for years, I would finish a certain project and I haven't. And I know many people live with their version of that or they just give up. How do you successfully hold yourself accountable? Well, part of it is, my friend, I, for many years, was the primary income in my first marriage. And I had a child, and we had a house, and I don't like to be poor. <laughs> so, um, and then those books had deadlines, though. I would sell them. But then the business deadlines, you know, to produce content, things like that, it was just part of, like, this is what you do. Like, this is, you put your big girl panties on, and you do it. So I think that's my sort of driven self. And then with this book and the fact that it was, you know, it was nobody was asked. I mean, my, my last publisher would regularly ask me for another book. So it wasn't that, that people didn't want a book from me. But there's very much a feeling in me that it has to come from me. It has to be 
it has to it, ha it has to be written and I don't mean that to sound in any way like that's the better thing I think people can totally write to the marketplace and see a need that needs to be filled and fill it I think that's just as genuine it's just not the way I've ever been built as a creative I hated it when I read, wrote a magazine column I hated having to do what they wanted me to do it was very difficult for me so I think I think there's just this, this part of me that has to express, oh, oh my gosh, which reminds me of the question that I couldn't remember the answer to in the beginning of our interview. Oh, okay. Part two. What's the part other two, part? Part two, the signature theme is I got to make stuff. Oh, yes. <laughs> I got to make stuff. I got to create. I've got to make stuff. So the self-imposed deadline is combined with got to make a living, got to make stuff, right? Got to bring it together. Got to do it. Yeah. So I think for me, it's just not a question. It's just not a question. It's got to be done. And I believe in it. And I think the question for you is where is the desire? What is genuine in that project still? And sometimes what happens, I've seen with projects that last a long time and don't get finished, is it changes. <laughs> and you got to find what's juicy now. And a question that a friend of mine asked that's in the, um, it was when I was struggling to find this book after the memoir died. And I'll read it to you right now. She said, what's fresh for you now? Hmm. About, that's a great question about the book and about what I was working yeah. on those stories and that's why bother what was was fresh for me I like that question yeah I heard once Tony Robbins say in life you need either desperation or inspiration <laughs> <laughs> let's go for there. inspiration man <laughs> although yeah. I definitely had my either. desperation I've definitely <laughs> yeah. had my desperation I oh yeah oh god <laughs> <laughs> okay so I think this is my last Okay, two last questions on writing, I think, and then just maybe a couple or a few on promotion. What are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? Ooh, what a good question. I love that. Let's just geek out for like an hour about that. <laughs> First, I think we have to, the thing, the big thing that I always am helping writers with is vary your rhythm. People love to get stuck, whether it's short staticky sentences or lots of ands and you know, just linking things together and linking things together. So vary your rhythm. Study what a list sentence is. That's one of my favorite things I learned from Priscilla Long all those years ago. List sentences. The great example of that every teacher uses is the things they carried by Tim O'Brien. The beginning of that book is all paragraph after paragraph of the things they carried into the Vietnam War, these soldiers. Play with, learn, like I'm dyslexic. I have learning disabilities, as I've said. So I still don't know how I learned to read. I have a really hard time with like, what is the subject? What is the subject? What is the object? You know, studying grammar makes my like skin crawl off. But there are books that are just made of good sentences. And you can just take a few and write them down and ask yourself without the stuff that scares you about English class, if that stuff freaks you out like it does me, what is it about the sentence that works for me? What is it about the sentence that I love? And then write it the same exact way with your content. So if they use a verb, you use a verb. If they use an adverb, you use an adverb. If they use a color word, you use a color word, but your own content. So that's a great way to start to just develop. You're, you're, I think we're all great natural writers if we trust ourselves and if we allow ourselves to be generous, really generous. And this, we, if grammar freaks you out, studying sentences, diagramming sentences makes you want to puke, don't do it. But you can still internalize it and practice it. Oh, I love, I love that. I, th I think that's great. And what you were saying, I think of all the interviews I've done, you know, what, you, what you're saying is it totally resonates with me. And I think of a guest, John Leland, where he talked about 
you know, they're concrete and that they have a sense of motion. Mm. And remember, and I think he came up with it right in the moment when he said, for example, the weapons are in the shed behind the barn. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, it's concrete. You can (laughs) feel it. You can see it. That's another thing I'll say about sentences. We love abstract because it's easy. So write the first draft abstract and then go back and say, okay, if I couldn't use one abstract word or concept, how would I get the same information, message, whatever it is, whatever genre you're writing across? And of course you'll leave some abstract, but it's a great way to start to force yourself to to make things specific. We'll go to the last question I have about writing, which is really about encouragement for anyone listening who is in the middle of or standing on the threshold of their own writing journey, their own project, what advice or encouragement do you give that person to get started or to get done? Don't be afraid of lowering the bar. Don't be afraid of putting utter, what appears to be utter dreck on the page. That is where we all start. And when we can lower the bar and greet ourselves there on the page, then we have something to work on. But when it stays in your mind, there's nothing to deepen and thicken. And most writing doesn't work, as Priscilla Long taught me, because it's too thin. The ideas aren't developed, or the sensory details aren't developed, or the characters, or the the description of the place. But we can't make something thicker if there's nothing there to start with. So lower the bar. Talk, write to yourself, write to a friend. Start it as an email. Right? How quickly do you write an email without even thinking about it? You know, if you're a text person, write it in your text to somebody. Yeah, lower the bar. And then the second thing I would, that I see over and over again is we don't believe that our stories and voice count. We don't believe that our stories and voice count. And every single time I work with writers, I find that there is more riches and more ideas and more stories inside of them that they'll ever have time in their life to get out. If you'll just open the door and let some of it out, it really does matter. Your voice and your stories are unique. They may not seem unique, but that's just because you haven't dug deep enough into them yet. But they are, and they're there, and there's plenty of inside you, and you're, you're never going to run out of stuff to say if you open the door. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so the very final part of the interview here, I just want to spend a few minutes talking about marketing and promotion. Oh, my favorite. Because I think if, if what I've read on the internet is to be believed (laughs) that this book is very likely going to put you over a million books in print. I hope so. Yeah. Which is pretty awesome. Congratulations on a long and prosperous writing career. Um, Live long, live long and prosper. Yes. (laughs) What have you learned? And I'm sure I know the industry has changed and you know, there's a lot, but what have you learned in your career about successfully selling books? It feels to me like it is really no different than it always has been, which is word of mouth. So how do you get that word of mouth going? How do you get enough people talking about it? I mean, it's like the virus, but in a good way. How do you get enough people passing it on? And, you know, how there's not one size fits all answer for that. There's not you have to know your niche you have to know your who are these people that you want to reach and what are the ways that they interact with the world and how can you start showing up there 
and don't assume that anything is too small to do. You know, one of the things that we're doing to promote the book is I put out a link to my list and you can book me to come and talk to your book group. And I'm always, all I ask is I say, you know, 10 people or more, and if they can afford to buy the book, buy the book. And you organize it. I'm not organizing it. <laughs> and I'll show up. And there was probably a time in my life that I would have been like, oh, that's going to be so tedious. I don't want to do that. I'm like, that sounds like a good idea to me. I love connecting with people. And when I connect with people, they usually, not all the time, but usually want to stay connected. I think that one of the things we're going to be trying in the next weeks is really exploring um, who are the book Instagrammers in my in the self-help world. That's not something that existed before. I think that trying to find people who have a platform who can connect to your book, they don't have to have podcasts. They may just have a big social media following. I mean, that's no different, right? You're no different than what the brands are trying to do who have the you know, the surfer surfing on their surfboard. So you can, you know, you can be looking for those people, but it has to be genuine, you know, you have to. So I think it's really about being willing to know that nobody has the answer and that you're not gonna be able to hire someone to do this for you. You can hire piecemeal pieces, but if you don't really genuinely understand what it is you're trying to do, and, and, and I mean like, you don't have to understand how Facebook ads work, but you have to understand how, why you would be using a Facebook ad and why your people would respond to a Facebook ad and how you would write a good Facebook, Facebook ad. But you could hire someone conceivably, it's hard to find, someone who could manage the back end of the Facebook ad. Does that make it a little more clear what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. I like the way you distinguish that about you don't need to know necessarily how to do it, but you need to know why you're doing it. Right. How to have a lookalike audience and you know, da, 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 right. You can, you can, you, but you have to know enough to like, why am I choosing Facebook ads? And nothing makes me like make just crawl out of my skin faster than when an author says to me or a friend says, I'll just throw some money at that. I'll just hire someone to do that. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to tell you it's not going to work <laughs> unless you get wildly lucky in some weird way. It's got to come from you. And it means digging into a lot of stuff that you may not find pleasurable, but what makes it pleasurable for me is I keep connecting to my desire to get the word out about this thing that I love. I love this book. And so why would I not do the work? Why would I think, I mean, for me, the word I would use, and this is very self-revealing, is I'm above it somehow, right? The, the marketing and sell, the marketing the book is, is somehow grubby, right? And authors and writers don't have to do that. And some, yeah, I, I mean, I have friends who are super successful who don't have to market anything. They are, they, it's true. There are some people who don't have to do it, but I'm not one of them. Yeah, no, I have uh, a new respect for marketing and those who do <laughs> it well, for sure. And, you know, for a lot of years, I worked at a motorsports park my dad built in the desert oh, cool. west of Salt Lake. And, and uh, prior to that, I wasn't a racing fan. I didn't care much about motorsports. But one of the things I saw there is a parallel to writing where, you know, there's a lot of talented drivers in the world. There really are. But the ones who end up making a career of it are not necessarily the most talented. They're the ones who can find sponsors. Yeah. You know, and, and in, in marketing is the same way. There's so many talented coaches and speakers and presenters and trainers and even thought leaders. But what distinguishes, I think, the ones who get heard are the ones who, who know how to put a message out into the world in a way that people really understand and want. And I think about something I heard Tony Robbins say once in an interview when he said, I realized early in my career that if I didn't become a master marketer, my ideas would die on my lips. And it just struck me 
how deliberate he was and has been. So what you're saying makes sense. Yes. I had the same, I had my teeny tiny version of that, which is the woman's comfort book, Harper, San Francisco. So it was Harper and Row. right before they bought the book, they became Harper Collins and they opened, uh, not right before, but soon before they opened a division in San Francisco that was going to be more, a little bit more of their personal growth, women's spirituality, et cetera, books. And that's who bought my book. The Harper New York got really excited about the book early on and they're like, we're going to put, we're going to publish 50,000 copies. We're going to put major money into this. And then two weeks later, they came back and said, nope, we've changed our minds. There's too many candles in the book. <laughs> Lighting candles, you know, way pre-goop, right? So I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I bought a mailing list from a uh, adult education center. I designed my own book tour, getting them to sponsor me to come. They didn't pay me, but just to give me, you know, a place to come and put the word out to do workshops around the country. I contacted bookstores on my own and I toured the country for four, three or four months in my parents' Ford tourist station wagon with books in the back of my car. And, and, and Harper, the book started to sell well, so then they gave me media support, which I would have had no idea how to do. And I started to get good media and things, so that really helped as well. But I was just like determined to not let the book die. And you know, this was in 1992, so there was no internet really. I mean, I didn't know there was no internet. Yeah. I really love hearing those stories because I think it's easy for people who want to write a book, want to publish a book, or they think they do, to imagine, you know, that they can, maybe lightning will strike for them and they'll write the next secret and everyone will love it and that. And, and really, I think the more I understand about this industry, the more I see it's pretty much like every other industry that there are no shortcuts, you know, but there are best practices. There is a science to the success. And if granted, while audiences are different and where they are and stuff is unique, that some of, there are some fundamentals. There are, and it's about, it's, it, it is fundamentally about relationships again, and whether that relationship is with the individual reader or it's with who are these people and why, why are they going to listen to me and how can I reach them? And that can mean hours and hours of digging and looking and, and figuring that out. And that's okay. That's okay. That's part of the writing too. Yeah. I have loved this conversation and I'm not surprised, you know, that it's already been two hours. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you. Thank you for making the time. I really am grateful. I'm, I'm glad we connected. I'm so grateful. You're a wonderful interviewer. This has been the funnest two hours. Well, thanks. And what a, what a great way to end the week. Yes, it's Friday. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> okay, take care. I'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me 
and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.